one of my fond memories of high school involves my inability to swim, but having to swim nevertheless in the diving pool. I was always terrified. You see, as part of the phys ed classes, we did a lot of things like basketball, volleyball, and one of them had to be swimming as well. After a couple of classes of learning, whatever needed to be learned, you know, for the assessment, the day would come. And while everybody else would just dive in the pool and gracefully glide across, for me, it was time to try and remember and to put into action everything that the coach and my friends had been teaching me and demonstrating to me so that I can at least make the three out of 10 just for getting to the other side. And so there I would be holding on to the side of the swimming pool and to make me feel safe, you know, more than half my class would get into the pool you know, and just float there, cheering me on. The whistle would blow and it would be time to swim. I would kick for dear life and get to the other side. And you'd swear that I got a gold medal. And in many ways, I think something similar is happening in this text. Verse 12 is the call to the Philippians to swim. Time to swim. What I want you to see this morning is that Paul here, in this verse, verse 12, chapter 2, verse 12, asks of the Philippians that which he has demonstrated of himself already in the letter. What Paul asks of the Philippians in this verse, chapter 2, verse 12, I want you to see that he himself has already demonstrated it of himself in this letter. Look back with me at chapter 1, verse 30. Look at chapter 1, verse 30. He says, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had and now hear that I still have. You see, Paul instructs the Philippians in light of the fact that they are going through the same struggle that Paul has. And so if you read carefully, you'll notice that he asks them to do what he himself does for himself. Now, I also want you to notice that even as Paul talks about himself and his struggle and his suffering and how he deals with Paul the Apostle is thinking biblically. He's thinking in Old Testament terms, in Old Testament conceptions of the world. It's what Abraham learns between Genesis 12 and Genesis 22. Remember Genesis 12, he receives the promises of God. But he flounders in verse 9 and 10. 
because he gets to the promised land and then there's famine and then he goes back to Egypt. But by chapter 22, he has Isaac, the epitome of God's promises and is willing to sacrifice it. Paul here is drawing from Old Testament conceptions and ideas and is drawing specifically in this case from the book of Job in particular. If you don't know what the book of Job is about or who Job is, it's about an extremely successful and morally upright man called Job who suddenly goes through the worst kind of suffering, just shy of a very painful death. And from Job's vantage point, this all seems to be happening randomly to the point where those around him conclude that he must have done something terrible for stuff like this to be happening to him. But in all that suffering, Job is unmoved in his faith. In his conviction that the worth of life is God himself. Abraham, I am your great reward. And so Paul is drawing from Job. And in fact, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 19, Paul directly quotes from Job. Look at chapter 1, verse 19. Philippians 1, verse 19. He says, For I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my salvation. Job, in the book of Job, chapter 13, verse 16, in the height of his own demise, looks at his situation, he's on his deathbed, and he says, indeed, this will turn out for my salvation. The reason this is an Old Testament concept is because these guys are saying these words, staring death in the eye. They are expressing a confident faith whose hope in God cannot be taken away even by the grave. But notice, it's not a... I have faith in God, therefore things will turn out for the better. Mm -mm. It's not a, that days never last. Mm -mm. Rather, it's a, whether by life or by death. That's the one that's 21. It's a, Whatever happens, the one verse 27, whatever happens, a though the dark days may endure. These guys are fully aware that the flicker of life they have can be extinguished any moment when they say, this will turn out for my salvation. Though 
is basically on his deathbed. And I'm making the point that Paul says the exact same words as Job, and yet in the very next verse, verse 21, chapter 1, verse 21, he talks of the need to have courage to die for Christ if necessary, because he because he's in the jail where a likely death sentence looms large over his head. The salvation he talks about might well be released from jail, perhaps. But point is, even if he dies, his hope still applies. Either way, he will be vindicated. I want you to see that as a climax, Paul presents Jesus as the supreme example of doing this. He presents Jesus as the height of what he and Abraham and Job do in the midst of suffering. On the cross, Jesus, like Abraham, like Job, like Paul, goes through the worst kind of suffering. The worst kind of persecution. The worst kind of unjust opposition. And just like Abraham in Genesis 22, just like Job, just like Paul, he offers no defense for himself. Takes it on with a quiet confidence and trust in God. The language that the Bible uses is that he, he obeys fully. The two verse eight. He obeys fully to the point of And just like Abraham, just like Job, just like Paul, Jesus can do this because he has a hope that even the grave cannot take away. Looks to God. And behold, his pain, his suffering, turns out for his salvation. Just like Job, through his resurrection, Jesus is vindicated. He's vindicated by God for all to see. The one who hung now reigns. Every knee bows to him in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And so then here in chapter 2, verse 12, Paul turns around and says to the Philippians, who are going through the same struggles that they saw that he had and that he still has, the same sufferings, the same unjust opposition, the same persecution as he is going through. Paul turns to them. Paul turns to the reader of this letter, who is going through untold suffering and seemingly random struggles. Maybe unjust opposition. Paul turns around and says, You've seen Abraham. 
Sim, Joe. Sim, me. Sim, Jesus. I keep talking about what Abraham and Job and Paul and Jesus do in the midst of suffering. But really, this is not at the level of doing. It's at the level of how you conceive of things. At the level of what you think you're saying when you say you put your faith in God. It's the level, it's at the level of the two verse five, mindset, mindset settings. A governing principle to live worthily of the gospel. So that level of belief The level of believing and well understanding what you mean when you say you have come to faith the one verse 29 for it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him but also to suffer Really, it's an invitation to adopt a certain mindset, an invitation to conceive of what happens at the cross of Jesus Christ as evidence of making sense of the suffering that we encounter. Or, to put it in a different way, to make sense of your own world in light of what happens at the cross. To deal with God in your suffering. To deal with God in light of what happens at the cross. It's an invitation. Looking at him at, the, at work at the cross and have a quiet confidence in the God who vindicates. Who vindicates his people. Quiet confidence in the God who works out pain and suffering and opposition into glorious salvation. See, a lot of us all of us know that we should trust God. We know this. And just like Peter, we might initially, you know, quickly come to cherish the idea of carrying our own cross. Until, of course, it's time to carry that cross. I'm particularly thinking of our tendency, tendencies to be quick to self-justify. quick to self-defend in the face of 
seemingly random suffering or unjust opposition. Why me? Job is able, is able to stare death in the eye and utter the words, indeed, this will turn out for my salvation. Paul in a Roman prison, staring a likely death in the eye himself, quotes the same text, exact words from Job. This will turn out for my salvation, Philippians 1.19. Jesus too is portrayed as not having put up any defense in his suffering, as he trusted in God who would work it out for his Paul is probably speaking in this letter into a situation where the Philippians have no defenses. The Philippians have no recourse. It's probably speaking to a situation where there's nowhere to go to. in life utter helplessness utter loneliness utter desertion moments in life where there is no recourse what all of those kind of moments have in common is that they are moments of utter defenselessness There's no insurance for suffering. There's no amount of education. No walls high enough. No security tight enough. No private health care sophisticated enough to handle the loss of a loved one. Betrayal of a trusted friend. Or the corruption of a powerful detractor bent on ruining. Had no defense. Abraham put up no defenses. Jesus refused to defend himself. Rather, they looked far. Notice that in verse 12, Paul says, chapter 2, verse 12, he says, Therefore, my friends, just as you have always obeyed, not only my presence, but now much more in my absence, other half, continue to work out your salvation. Notice that Paul is not referring to obedience. He's not referring to obedience to particular instructions, you know. But Paul is talking about their obedience in general. In other words, your working out of your salvation is in the same vein as your normal Christian obedience. You're working out of salvation in the face of suffering, opposition, and persecution is still in the same vein as your ordinary Christian obedience, just as you've always been. You've already seen that what is working out of your salvation is in the context of suffering and opposition and persecution. The point being, Those instances of suffering 
a moment of our obedience. Those instances of execution and the position are occasion of our obedience. Like in any other area. Trust in God, faith, our hanging our hopes on Him, our entrusting ourselves to Him in faith in the midst of suffering is a matter of Christian obedience. Hence, this is done, if you noticed in chapter 2, verse 12, with fear and trembling. Because God, verse 18, works in you to will and to serve. Fear and trembling here is not hoo-hoo, fear and trembling. But it is used in the sense of reverence before God, obedience, seriousness with which we must take this task of suffering well. It speaks to the non-negotiability and the graveness of the exhortation. Work out implications that as we all know part and parcel of living worthily of the gospel, chapter 1 verse 27 living worthily of the gospel under God is necessarily dealing with the suffering that comes in that comes our way in a godly manner. It is something that must be embraced under God as a necessary part of our Christian maturity. Not only must it be embraced, but it must be taken as serious as any other aspect for our Christian lives. See, although it is obvious that everybody goes through suffering if you live long enough, what is not readily obvious is that that is a key aspect of Christian discipleship, of Christian living, an area, an occasion for our obedience. The psalmist says, we feel before the Lord. We wait patiently for Him. Not fret when people succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes. Refrain from anger. Turn from wrath. Do not fret. It only leads to evil. For those who are evil will be destroyed, but those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. The shock of that passage is that you can be the one suffering and still stand condemned before God. Friends, what is our memory and our grumbling and our arguing if it is not our efforts at self-justification, at self-defense, instead of waiting on God? instead of it being a reliance 
and the show of confidence and faith in the God who vindicates. Look at the very next verses in Philippians chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. The other side of the coin. Paul says, having exhorted, do everything without grumbling or arguing. So that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then, only then, will you shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. As I close, there's a quote I want to share with you. This is now a quote. This is not, this is not me speaking now. I believe like a child that suffering will be healed and made up for. That all humiliating absurdity of human contradictions will vanish like a pitiful mirage. That in the world's finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts for the comforting of all resentments, for the atonement of all the crimes of humanity, of all the blood that they've shed, that it will make, that it, will make it not only possible to forgive, but to justify all that has happened. Let me read one more time. I believe like a child, suffering will be healed and made up that all the humiliating absurdity of human contradictions will vanish like a pitiful mirage. But in the world's finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts, for the comforting of all resentments, for the atonement of all the crimes of humanity, of all the blood that they've shed, that it will make it not only possible to forgive, but to justify all. As we sang this morning, we want to come back to the heart of worship. As you helped Abraham, Genesis 12, Figure out what his faith actually was. Grow our faith. And bring us to the point that you brought Abraham to in Genesis chapter 22. Work in our hearts. Grow in us. The faith of Job. The faith of Paul. Thank you for the ultimate picture. Live post the cross and resurrection. We see you, O God, who vindicates. Raise your one and only Son from death. Help us that the pattern of the cross and resurrection animate our lives, animate our living through the Spirit. This is a work that only you can do, O God. So it is why we only pray to you for 
all power belongs to you. Holiness is imparted by you. We pray this in the precious name of our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ.